This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. By relabeling an emotion as well under anxiety or stress, like speaking in front of a crowd, if I were just relabel that as I'm excited rather than I'm stressed, it slows us down. It, it takes the brake or the accelerator off the fight or flight uh, mechanism. So of course we want to accentuate the positive self-talk, but we really want to modify and reappraise those that are self-critical, self-damaging, um, uh, and those that are irrational or catastrophic so that we minimize again that stress response. Welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others Leadership Podcast with Nina Sunday for experienced and aspiring people managers. This show will help you explore ways to become a more intentional leader. Each episode, host Nina Sunday speaks with some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share a passion to elevate and transform team culture. Workplace culture hides in plain sight. Is yours flourishing? Join the movement to make your workplace a better place to work. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self, lead others. My guest this episode is the preeminent psychologist, researcher and author, Dr. Kenneth Novak from California. Ken is Editor-in-Chief for the American Psychological Association's Consulting Psychology Journal and President and Chief Research Officer of Invisia Learning. Developer of the Stress and Health Risk Assessment called Stress Scan and three new validated assessments, the Innate Index, the Career Profile Inventory and the Resilience Inventory, links are in the show notes. Author of two books... It is my honor to welcome Dr. Ken Novak. Welcome, Ken Novak. Thank you. <laughs> Tell me, where, where are you in the world, Ken? I'm at the beach in uh, Santa Monica, California. Oh, so that's lovely. A visit. We can go for a hike, a walk, a bike ride. I don't surf, but uh, whatever else you're into, we could do here. And I'm at the beach in Brisbane, Australia, which uh, which has been named the home of the Olympics in 2032. Oh. It'll be hosting the Olympics. Yeah. So we're on the map. Look, I came across a post you put on, on LinkedIn. It was all about resilience and cognitive hardiness. And then I got in contact with you and then you sent me links to your um, journal article on cognitive hardiness. So thank you for uh, making time to uh, to answer a few questions and tell our listeners about it. And just tell us what is cognitive hardiness and why you chose it, it to study. Yeah, maybe I'll start with a really brief story about uh, why this topic is of great interest to me um, just personally. And uh, the story is about my father, who, when he was eight years old and born in a very small uh, town in Berlin called Erkner, was woken up by his parents uh, around midnight and actually put on a train. And he was told by his parents to uh, be good behave, uh, be quiet, uh, try not to speak German if you can. And unbeknownst to him, he was actually um, shepherded by a great organization that still exists in France that protected my father uh, during the Holocaust, um, never to see his parents and most of his family again. 
and was hidden for three years in uh, small villages in France. And this organization was uh, just very luckily able to uh, sneak him out where he eventually wound up in an orphanage in the San Francisco, uh, California Bay Area. And those were his formative years. And I look back at his childhood and uh, all of the uh, adults he's since passed, but um, he stayed in contact with all the kids that came over with him on the ship and uh, others that were spread out around the United States and Europe and the Middle East, and uh, was able to really watch their trajectory, you know, who was healthy uh, physically and psychologically. And it was an amazing, uh, obviously a case study of watching my own father's experience, but um, it really raised that question for me of why do some people go through life trauma and uh, events and challenges and are basically healthy and some even um, go beyond that and we have a term called post-traumatic growth. Um, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And others uh, chronically seem to be impaired um, psychologically and physically. And so that's what got me started on this journey of uh, research in the area of uh, hardiness and resilience and stress, burnout, these topics that are uh, quite popular today post-COVID. Yeah, that, that's an amazing story about your father and how wonderful of you to actually use that as, as an impetus to do the really good work that you do. So thanks for sharing that story, Ken. You're welcome. I mean, there's the book called Grit, and yeah. we've got yeah. resilience and, and there's mental toughness. So how do you define uh, cognitive hardiness? Yeah, glad you raised all of uh, those labels. One of the uh, great challenges and one of the hats that I wear professionally as an editor for one of the American Psychological Association journals called Consulting Psychology Journal. And one of the issues we wrestle with in uh, manuscripts that come to us for possible publications are these labels, uh, resilience, grit, mental toughness, uh, goes on and on. And uh, many of them are overlapping in concepts. In fact, there's a concept in psychology called the jingle jangle effect. And uh, these are uh, words that sometimes um, are used for marketing and advertising purposes that look and smell to be something different, but they're not. So when, as an example, you mentioned grit, um, it's been quite popular. Since. And when you really dig into the research, um, it's not with, with uh, really with um, the current data that's out there. It really seems to be a jangle of um, very well-known psychological concepts, such as conscientiousness and drive and achievement orientation. Yes. So I don't want to say it's been debunked, but certainly it's another label for something in psychology we've known about for a long time. And mental toughness and hardiness, um, again, are just different uh, advertising and marketing labels for the initial conceptualization of what hardiness was uh, many, many years ago, which was uh, basically some cognitive uh, predispositions that uh, seem to capture at least three areas. Our own measure captures four, but um, just to be really brief, one of those measures is um, do you have a sense of control in life or do you believe everything's God's will or luck? And it really comes from the psychology of locus of control, that we have uh, 60 years of research or more showing that when people believe their efforts result in accomplishments, um, we're healthy and we can withstand some stress. And the second concept that's quite popular today is this idea of uh, being committed, uh, finding your passion. Uh, we talk about this in the world of work, of uh, really not just above and beyond belonging to organizations, but doing meaningful work. And today's millennials, I think more than any other generation, have really migrated to cause-based activities. 
So a second facet uh, in hardiness is this idea of being committed to and being passionate and being excited, waking up in the morning and really wanting to do what you want to do. And hence today, you know, post-COVID, we're wrestling with this idea of uh, the great resignation, which is no more of reframing of what do you want to do? What's important? Who's important? Uh, what uh, makes you wake up in the morning and give you that, that energy? And the third pretty traditional hardiness uh, component, I'll stop in just a moment, <laughs> is this idea of how do you view change? And unless you're a wet baby, none of us uh, really resonate with wanting to uh, change much. Uh, we have a comfort level of what we like to do, but people that are hardy cognitively, they'll view change um, in a positive adaptive uh, mindset of it being a challenge rather than a threat. So it doesn't raise anxiety uh, to a threshold and stress to a thre threshold that uh, really overwhelms us. So those are the original conceptualizations of hardiness. Mental toughness is another kind of a label that uh, measures the same thing. And there's many others out there that have these overlapping uh, concepts and labels. Yeah, well, uh, you've, your research, uh, which is published in the, uh, now, is it, an, it published in a journal? The Coaching Psychologist. It is, yeah. It's a, several, I have many that uh, have been in peer-reviewed uh, academic journals like that one, but uh, it's an interesting topic. And like I say, there's many ways to measure this. There's many vendors and yes. psychologists that have very similar tools uh, based on these three pretty predominant um, mindsets that uh, give us an adaptive advantage of how we view things. You know, I, I meet people who um, in life who something happens, something happens to them and their response is, oh, that always happens to me. Is that an <laughs> indication of someone that is not feeling like they have the ability to influence events? Yeah, and you go back to, again, this idea of locus of control, they're yeah. the victim. You know, they don't feel like they can overcome it or it's uh, everyone's out to get me. So it's this victimization at a mental level uh, that really causes when there's stress in their life, um, the cortisol and fight or flight response to be elevated um, quite a bit longer than the rest of us that have a very different mindset, which is, you know what, uh, it's a situation. It's uh, something that's a one-time occurrence and it wasn't due to me. It was due to uh, the environment or what I've been thrown into. I can overcome that. I can learn from it. I can grow from it. And because that sort of uh, ties in with Martin Seligman's um, learned optimism. It's like he's defined uh, the difference between yeah. pessimists and optimists. Well, we're learning to that's that's a fascinating topic because the uh, common um, you know acceptance in the in the media and, and even researchers is that optimism is in fact. Uh, one of those great predictors of longevity and mortality and uh, happiness. And there's been some reanalysis done by uh, some seminal work by Michael Shire, uh, who has done um, some of the, the initial work around uh, this particular concept of optimism. He has an, his own measure called the LOT. And, and uh, two years ago, he came out with a very recent um, reanalysis of all current research around optimism and pessimism. And surprisingly, what he found is it's the absence of pessimism rather than the presence of optimism that's a much stronger predictor of uh, life, uh, happiness, and uh, health and well-being. So it doesn't uh, negate that people that are optimistic, we don't want people to be pessimistic. Um, but at the end of the day, when we look at it from a research perspective, we really want to look at the balance of optimism and pessimism 
And it is the lack of pessimism that seems to what really buoys up uh, the health outcomes that researchers have found for the last 20 years. That's really interesting, Ken. And what I'm thinking about is that one of the uh, quality of cognitive hard- hardiness is the ability to cope and to to, to yeah. go into action, to problem solve. Mm-hmm. And if you go, this is a, an obstacle, I'm going to problem solve, that automatically makes you feel optimistic because you go, you feel like you've got control, at least you're going to take some action. Whereas if someone feels more like a victim, they'll go, oh, now what? Woe is me. <laughs> Woe is me. And get caught up in a little bit of self-pity instead of problem solving. It w- is, that, is that sort of a possible difference? It is, and we find people that are hardy are proactive. They use more problem-focused coping techniques mm. because they feel as if what they do will result in really particular outcomes. So if I'm willing to assert myself in a relationship or in a team, speak out and take a risk, even if I don't feel psychologically safe, um, we find that it's a way of coping with uh, whatever we're dealing with in the world of work and the world of life. So it is an action orientation. Hardy people, um, it isn't just cognitive reappraisal, but it's a problem solving and problem focused uh, type of behavioral coping. Yeah, because I am one of those action takers. And I do know that when when I'm with over the years, when I've been with friends and they'll talk about their issue, I go straight into, well, you could do this and you could do that. And I've yeah. discovered that that's not what people want. They just want some empathy. So I now bite, you know, zip my lips a little and I'm going, well, I have all these ideas I could share with you. <laughs> But, well, I think, again, the situation is who you're dealing with, and um, we do find in social connectiveness and uh, social support is another area of a little bit of research. It's um, different forms of support that people need and want at different times. So that directive advice giving, um, problem solving, uh, giving us your, your words of wisdom, at times is something that people in your life will really value. Other times, as you mentioned, it's zip the lip and just be a great active listener, be there for people and let them know you have a shoulder they can cry on and really be with you. And, so and it's the, all in the timing, as you say, like maybe uh, they'll just process it emotionally, then they can like come up and put their heads out and go, now what, what's next? <laughs> well, this is what complicates also research and social support is the facets of the type of support uh, that's delivered to others and um, you know really accepted. So we have a measure of social support we use in our research, and we actually measure three things separately, but it's all within one scale. And one of those is, do you perceive there are people in your life that are there for you? You In other words, your champion, your mentors, your coaches, your life partners. And if you don't, um, you're obviously a pretty lonely and disconnected uh, social creature that uh, very strongly, it's uh, predictive of uh, shorter lifespans, more mortality. The second thing that we're asking is, independent of how many people are are out there in your life, um, did you find that they're helpful? Did you find that they're instrumental in um, their advice and their emotional support and what they could be doing? So that's another facet that we look at. And uh, finally, we look at uh, whether or not um, you're satisfied with that. So there's people in your life that are really attempt to do wonderful things for you. And it's not the right timing. It's not the right thing we really need and want. So we would report subjectively that uh, I'm really glad Nina was there, but I I don't know. I didn't get what I really needed out of that interaction or uh, that comforting. I was looking for something different. 
So we look at these three aspects of uh, social support, availability, utility, are you using who's there, and this concept of satisfaction. Are you happy with um, whatever happened in the dynamics of that interaction between you and the other individual? It's yes. a complicated measurement. Yes, one of the um, uh, measurements, I sometimes use this in recruitment, one of the measurements I've uh, come across, Tad James, uh, talks mm. about matching and mismatching. And mm. some people are automatic matches and they see what's right. And other people are automatic mismatches. And the first thing they gravitate to is to see what's wrong. Now, I suppose if if you're in an office and you, you've got a brochure that you're about to send off to publish, you know, 10,000 copies or 100,000, you want a mismatcher to pick out what's wrong. But if it's already published, you want the matcher to look yeah. at and say, isn't that great? You've done a great job. But in life that could actually have, the mismatcher could have negative consequences because everything that happens, they see what's wrong or they start a new job and very quickly they see what's wrong with working there. And so they may not stay as long as a matcher that feels more comfortable, sees what's yeah. right with people, connects with people. I don't know. Do you have any opinion on that? Well, two really quickly. And one is we could look at personality disorders that are classically defined and people that have um, shadow paranoid personality disorders or true paranoid personality disorders, they look for the negative. They are tuned into and hypervigilant for uh, people that um, are doing things that you and I might interpret as neutral, but they interpret as out to get them. So they have a mindset that's uh, quite interesting of um, looking at the world through a lens that's more bleak and uh, negative and cautious uh, from that perspective. So that's that's one look at um, you know, what's going on there that um, I could bring up. Yeah. Well, sounds like there's we're now at the nature versus nurture crossroad, which is yeah. yeah. Is, is it the neurotransmitting chemicals in the brain that is causing some sort of uh, psychological response or is it a result of some childhood wound that they haven't managed to fully heal from and of course people have different degrees of challenges and trauma in their childhood but you know uh, uh, tell me have you got an opinion on that? You seem you're so articulate with everything that I'm asking you about. I'm really excited. Well, these are great questions, and I don't think I have a, a firm answer. But George Bonanno, who's been one of the uh, great gurus in the resilience research literature, um, last year had a wonderful paper uh, that talked about the genetic predispositions that people might have and the different trajectories. So, like my father, who bounces back? Uh, who chronically gets ill? Who are the people that recover? And you are the people that basically things happen in life and there's no real change. They don't become majorly depressed. There's maybe a little bit of down mood, but at the end of the day, they're even keel. And George's uh, research really suggests, again, that there may see maybe uh, some genetic predispositions to um, the kinds of ways we cope with work and life and the trajectories. And personality research um, is quite provocative in that when we look at identical twins raised in very different environments, we've got a really clean way of trying to tease out nature versus nurture. And depending on the trait, we can find as much as 20 to 30% of a genetic predisposition for things like sensation seeking or uh, feeling energized being around people. But obviously it's our peer group, our parenting, our social uh, experiences that truly shape who we are. And personality drifts, it doesn't change dramatically. 
But as we age, we see some very significant trends uh, in all personality, major five personality factors. So your question's a really great one. It is a combination of nurture and nature, but on average, 20 to 30% of a lot of the personality traits and qualities seem to have a pretty strong genetic predisposition. Mm. And um, you, you, you do talk a little bit about uh, genetics and neurological differences, and you mentioned the cortisol awakening response. Is that something uh, easy to describe? Well, all of us um, have this, this stress hormone called cortisol, but what we don't uh, often think about, it's a 24-hour rhythm. So many things um, that we have in our body are circadian-natured. Sleep is a great example. Uh, but cortisol is actually one that uh, will buoy up and down. We can actually graph, um, if I could grab saliva or blood from you periodically, we would see that it actually hoovers um, at the highest point right after when you wake up in the morning. And depending on that spike, it's actually a pretty interesting and significant predictor of the likelihood if you'll experience a traumatic uh, or very um, you know, debilitating life event or adverse situation, um, how will you react to it? And people with very large cortisol awakening spikes are more prone to PTSD and other significant life crises. So it isn't as if we're running around people's bedrooms and taking saliva or blood when they first wake up in the morning, but it's another indicator of a genetic predisposition like blood pressure, like cholesterol, that um, a lot of times we can do behavioral things to cope and intervene, and sometimes we need pharmaceuticals to control it. But those are indicators, again, of resilience, uh, one of several that we can take a look at that are quite fascinating. But that one is a, a circadian, a 24-hour rhythm with an ebb and flow uh, over, over 24 hours. So the $64,000 question is, is yeah. hardiness a learnable skill? Uh, this is what my uh, latest academic paper was really trying to focus on. And the answer is yes and no. So <laughs> I really, really do see it exactly. as... Um, I totally agree. <laughs> it could be conceptualized as an individual trait, meaning that something that's somewhat fixed, it's fairly stable, I can measure it. And it gives me an idea to what extent uh, during stress you will actually recover more rapidly or get sick. So if I were to uh, drop um, in your nose droplets of um, cold viruses, rhinoviruses, and I were to take a look at uh, what's the likelihood they will actually result in you developing a full-blown cold, we find things like personality factors and things like hardiness uh, will either insulate people from developing colds or those that are low in hardiness actually have more manifestations of it. So we really do think it can be a trait, but we also know that um, it's something that um, can be modified. Mm -hmm. And I have at least um, five or six uh, cited peer-reviewed academic studies in uh, my article, um, and there's many, many, many others, hundreds of others that have really suggested that coaching and therapy and uh, counseling can shift people's mindset and shift people's behavior to be more hardy. And this is today what pretty, is pretty popular when you listen to a thousand um, uh, podcasts and articles on resilience. Everyone's talking about, well, go work out or eat well, or go hug a friend um, or practice mindfulness meditation. So these are interventions we've known that um, help reduce the fight or flight um, response, or they'll actually mute uh, one area of the brain called the default mode network that uh, is responsible for 
a lot of issues and challenges we have like anxiety disorders, um, or they'll facilitate the reward network in our brain. So things like being positive, being optimistic, uh, seeking physical activity, um, finding support in our life, they stimulate that side of the brain that will help mute, if you will, the stress response. So the answer to your question is um, hardiness is both a trait and it's a state. It's something we can modify. And in fact, in some of our research, we're using our measure and those of others uh, in hardiness to take a look at change uh, when we do coaching, when we do training, when we do therapy as an outcome. Do we see that people are hardier, they're more resilient as a result of a particular um, psychological intervention or a certain uh, training program that people come out and are actually uh, more hardy to avoid the impact of stress on the mind and body. Well, of course, would negative self-talk and positive self-talk make a difference? Because obviously, if, if a coach is changing an individual's mindset, their yeah. lens on the world is uh, being enhanced. And it could be the, the, the messages they say to themselves as they go through the course of their day. So you've got any thoughts on that? Well, we actually measure that in one of our tools, and we find that um, one can be high on negative self-talk and one can be equally high on positive self-talk. Mm -hmm. So these are independent uh, cognitive appraisal strategies. And we've known for you know 60 plus years, uh, an entire therapy has been built around modifying irrational beliefs and trying to um, restate those. And we call this technique cognitive reappraisal. And it's the basis of cog cognitive behavioral therapy is that we're really confronting um, what we look at from a negative and try and translate that realistically into something that's more positive. And in doing so, we're really muting, if you will, um, the fight or flight uh, response and all the neural mechanisms that relate to the stress uh, reaction. So it's one of the proven techniques that really can help people to um, really eradicate their negative and irrational beliefs and their thoughts, replace those with things that are a little bit more realistic. So if I'm catastrophic, I'm about to go to the dentist and uh, I just know they're going to pull every one of my teeth <laughs> and I'm paranoid and I'm, I'm ready not to go. Well, again, I can look at it from the worst case scenario or I could re re reframe that, that what's the likelihood of that happening? Eh, not very high. So again, just that switch um, by relabeling an emotion as well under anxiety or stress, like speaking in front of a crowd, if I were to just relabel that as I'm excited rather than I'm stressed, it slows us down. It, it takes the brake or the accelerator off the fight or flight uh, mechanism. So of course, we want to accentuate the positive self-talk, but we really want to modify and reappraise those that are self-critical, self-damaging, um, uh, and those that are irrational or catastrophic so that we minimize, again, that stress response. Because it 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 takes a certain discipline, self-discipline or willpower to want to stop a negative thought spiral from going out of control and to actually self-observe and yeah. identify it and go, does this thought serve me? Is this thought going to make me feel better in the end? Right. Because we can worry about something, but... Is it the reality? It's it's a it's a it's a an illusion, really, because it's an illusion of a, in our own mind. But I don't know. I get people saying, "Oh, you know, you can't replace your thoughts." Oh, well, maybe <laughs> you can. <laughs> well, it's challenging those. I think that's right. the key. And if you challenge it, then we could modify the way that we're thinking. 
So a lot of us go through life and we're uh, what we call in an unconscious competence mode of beating ourselves up or self-sabotaging our inability to take a risk because of the anticipation of fear or the negative outcome that hasn't occurred. So we spend a lot of time in our life, all of us, um, I do as well, dwelling on things that haven't happened in the future. That's the anxiety that we all bring and ruminating on things that have occurred in the past that that's over. We can't yeah. change it, but we can redefine it. We can relabel it. Yes. Uh, look, I think there's so many pearls of wisdom in there, Ken. I, I suspect people will want to listen to it a second time. <laughs> I certainly do. Ken, it's been Absolutely wonderful speaking with you. You are so articulate. You you say the most complex ideas in the most simple, understandable way that I feel all my listeners now are, are mini experts in cognitive hardiness and how to uh, be, feel more resilient. Ken, please tell us a little bit about your current work and, and where you're working. Yeah, thank you, Nina. I'm actually chief research officer of a global consulting company called Envisual Learning. We're based uh, both here in the U.S. and Cambridge in the U.K. And uh, that company is really kind of a marriage of psychology and technology. We design and develop uh, platforms uh, for habit change, for uh, surveys and assessments. And that's been another area of uh, work over the last 20 years is developing validated tools in the area of uh, 360 feedback, personality, career, and others. Another cap that I wear is as a researcher and licensed psychologist, I serve on Dan Goldman's um, Emotional Intelligence Research Consortium, a collective of uh, worldwide researchers that um, really focus on this very broad area of emotional and social competence. And one additional uh, volunteer role that I play with the American Psychological Association here in the States is the editor in chief of one of the uh, academic peer-reviewed journals called Consulting Psychology Journal. So this is some of the professional uh, caps and uh, roles that I play. And I think I might've mentioned uh, to you privately that one of the things outside the world of work that my wife and I do um, and love is um, our commitment to a great uh, volunteer organization uh, globally, but here uh, in California, we raise uh, service and guide dogs for the blind and for adolescents on the spectrum. So uh, some of the areas that um, I like to give back as well. Well, that's wonderful work because it must be really emotionally tough letting a dog go after you've trained them and learned to love them. (laughs) So someone has to do it, and it's wonderful that you've chosen that path. And um, if people wanted to work with you, do you work with companies, individuals? How, How would that happen? Yeah, most of our work is with large consultancies and uh, industry, government, education. Um, most of our um, purchases of our tools would probably be organizations, although we do have some individual coaches, psychologists, um, trainers, consultants that are purchasing and using our platforms and uh, our technology as well. Well, it'll all be in the show notes, the, uh, the uh, your, your website and your contact details. So thank you so much today, Ken. Ken Novak, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Nina. Nina Sunday is on a mission to help leaders transform culture. To book Nina Sunday CSP to speak at your conference, visit ninasunday.com to request a proposal. Nina travels from Brisbane, Australia for in-person presentations Australia-wide. Twice certified virtual presenter, Nina Sunday presents virtually, globally, for any time zone. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.